Well, good morning, everybody. Jesus is the lost and found department, right? I'm lost without you, but he finds us. My name is Jay Bell, and my wife Jan is sitting on the third row, and I'd like for everybody just to turn around, and uh, the gentleman, uh, turn around and look back, the gentleman, the second guy sitting in, <laughs> all eyes are on. What's your name? Colin. Okay, Colin, could you just shift your head a little bit? There you go. Do you see? <laughs> Colin is uh, uh, a lot better looking, but now our picture is hanging on your wall. And do you know why? It's because you give us money. Seriously. And we don't take that lightly. Now, let me show you what I mean. You work hard to earn your bucks. Now, some of you might be on a fixed income. And, and so you really can't increase your earning capacity. It's like fixed. And you put up with a lot of pressures, a lot of guff uh, uh, where you work, but you get paid money. And um, you bring some of that money to the church here, and you give it to God as an act of worship. And you know what the church does? That, and you're the church. You give us some of that money. Seriously. And we don't take that lightly. In fact, we can be uh, moved emotionally over that, that your money is given to us in order to keep us flexible, to keep us mobile, and to keep us spontaneous in the ministry that God has given us. And when I say the us, I'm not talking about Jan and me, it's the us, because it's all of our ministry. And so who's the most important person in our ministry? Is it you giving money or us like out in the trenches? Both, both. And so we want to thank you so much. John 3.16, if you've been around the church any length of time, this is a very familiar verse. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the, what's the next word? World. He so loved the world. Um, the question is this, what is the world that God loves? Or, uh, let me put it this way, what in the world is the world that God loves? I love the King James Version that says, For God so loved the world that whosoever, and if you read that, it's like whosoever, you know? So who is the whosoever that God loves? Well, the world that God loves can be summarized in one word. Uh, so today, what we're going to do is we're going to have a one-word time in the Bible. So we're going to zero in just on this one word, but this one word um, uh, carries the, the, the ongoing, white-hot, passionate love affair that's in the heart of Jesus. His love affair is like poured out. His, his, his whole heart is directed toward this one word, that encapsulates the world that he loves. And that one word is the word nations. 
nations. Now, in your bulletin are notes. Would you, would you go to your notes and, and look at the top of your notes? I've entitled this morning, Nations, Not Countries, Need Christ. Now, this word nations is used more than 300 times in the Bible. And we're going to look at all, all 300 times today. Uh, God does not love countries. Uh, God does not love Brazil. God does not love Japan. God does not love America. His love affair is not with the countries of the world, but it's with the nations of the world. And there is a world of difference between the concept of countries and the concept of nations. Now, again, everybody turn around and look at your map back on the wall. That is a geographical political map or geopolitical map. That map is showing you the 237 countries in the world. But you see, those countries are very fluid. They come, they go, they rise, they fall, their names change, their, their, their borders change. God's love affair is not with the geographical, political countries of the world. God's love affair is for the nations that live inside the countries of the world. Now, let me give you an example of the nations. In Palm Springs, California, there is a nation. And they are very rich. You know why? Because Palm Springs sits on the reservation of the Cahuilla Indians. Now, the Cahuilla Indian nation is broken into three bands. There's the mountain band, There's the pass band, like in Banning and Beaumont, and then there is what is called the valley band. So three bands within the Cahuilla Nation. Now, the valley band is called the Agua Caliente band of the Cahuilla Nation. What's Agua Caliente mean in us? Hot water. And the reason they're called the hot water band is because above Palm Springs is Mount San Jacinto at 10,000 feet. that packs out with snow during the winter, but when the springtime comes, it thaws, and this water cascades down through these canyons, goes underground, and bubbles up, and Palm Springs is hot water. And so the Cahuilla Nation, the band that lives there, is called the Agua Caliente, and they have a reservation, and Palm Springs, like, sits on their reservation. They have their own language. They have their own culture. They have their own gods. They have their own food. They are distinct in and of themselves. There's only 422 of them left. And so they are a nation that is facing extinction. But that is an example of uh, a nation. Now, let me give you the definition of a nation. A nation is merely a group of people with their own language and culture. So we have the Cahuilla language, the Cahuilla culture. For God so loved the nations. For God so loved the Cahuilla nation. For God so loved the Agua Caliente band. So on your notes, let's begin our time this morning with point number one. 
And that is our commission in relation to this concept called nations. In other words, Jesus gave his church a mission. Not missions. If I had, if I had my way, I would stick dynamite between the N and the S. And I would blow the S off of the end of the word mission. Let me illustrate. When I was in Vietnam, uh, when we were getting ready to go out on patrol, the commanding officer would say, Tonight, men, you're going out on, on a missions. And we'd look at each other and say, We're going out on a what? I don't know. Shh. Tonight, men, you're going out on a missions. Now, the missions that you're going out tonight is very strategic. And there are some people out there that want to do you some harm. They want to send you home in a body bag. So I want you guys to be alert out there. No messing around. Cover each other's backside and fulfill the missions that you're going out on tonight. All right. And we'd turn to each other and we'd say, we're going out on a what? I don't know. I've never been on one before. What's, what's a missions? No, what we heard is this. Tonight, men, you're going out on a what? Mission. Jesus has given a mission to his church. Collectively, the church has been given this mission. Individually, all of us are to be on mission when we are away from this building during the week. The mission that Jesus has given us is all about the nations. Now, we call this mission great. In other words, it's like, it's like in the military, you, you have commissioned officers. And, 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 and God has commissioned his church with a mission. And, uh, and, and we call this commission the Great Commission. Now, whenever you hear the word Great Commission, we normally think of what, uh, which, which gospel in the New Testament? Matthew, right? Matthew chapter 28, Great Commission. We just need her, Matthew chapter 28. I can hear the discussion in heaven between, uh, like, for example, Luke and Matthew. Luke probably turns to Matthew and says, why is it always about you? I mean, down on the earth, people say, let's turn to the Great Commission, and they like, go to your, your account, Matthew, why don't they ever turn to me? I wrote about the Great Commission also. So let's look at Luke's account. Hey, Luke, we're turning to you. It's your time, buddy. Luke chapter 24 is Luke's record of what we call the commission or the mission that Jesus gave his church, you and me. This is post-resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead. This is his second appearance in Luke chapter 24. The first appearance was with the two, two, the two guys going to the village of Emmaus. But let, let's pick it up in uh, verse 44. Luke chapter 24, verse 44. Now, we've got to be very intentional here, and we've got to go word for word and squeeze this like a sponge getting every drop out because every word is so important. Let me show you what I mean. Luke chapter 24, verse 44. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. That means before his death and resurrection. 
Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me, Jesus. In the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Verse 45, then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. Now, there was no New Testament at this point of time. The New Testament hadn't been written. The only scriptures that they had was what we call the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is comprised of three parts. One is called the Law of Moses. That's the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy were written by Moses. And then you've got the prophets, and we call the minor prophets and the major prophets. And then you have the Psalms, and that's it, folks. That is the totality of the Old Testament, the Scriptures. And so Jesus is saying... I'm going to take you back into the Old Testament, into the Scriptures, and I'm going to show you what was written about me and how it's going to be fulfilled. So let's pick it up in verse 46. This is what is written about me in, in the Old Testament. Number one, the Christ will suffer. That's there. It's, it's in the Old Testament. Number two, and rise on the third day. And number three, verse 47, repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all, what's the word? Nations. Not countries. There was no Portugal 2,000 years ago as a country. But you know who were living 2,000 years ago? The Cahuilla Nation. But there was no United States of America 2,000 years ago. By the way, before exploration from Europe came to the North American continent, there were already 500 nations living here. Choctaw, Chickasaw, Arapaho, Cherokee, Sioux, Cheyenne, Apache, 500 nations. It's all about nations. Nations is the very heartthrob of our Lord Jesus Christ calling out his bride from among the nations. And so in Luke chapter 24, it says that Jesus took them back into the Old Testament and he opened up the Old Testament to show how Christ is in the Old Testament and how the good news of Jesus Christ is going to be spoken to all the nations in the world today. So uh, number two on your points, um, it says, so okay, uh, where did all these people, where did all these languages that are in Orange County, where did all these cultures, or sometimes we refer to them, those people, <laughs> where did all those people come from? Well, let's take our Bibles and let's turn back to Genesis. This is really cool stuff. Let's go to Genesis chapter 10 and 11. As you know, there was a worldwide flood, 
And uh, Noah and his wife and their three sons and their three boys entered the ark. And uh, after about a year, God parked the ark on a mountain called Ararat. And Noah and his wife and their three sons and daughters, their wives, daughters-in-laws, eight people, exited the ark. And this is the family tree of those eight people in Genesis chapter 10. So let's pick it up in verse 1. It says, this is the account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's sons. Uh, Are any of you old enough to remember Fred McMurray's TV program called My Three Sons? (laughs) Yeah. All right. This is Noah's three sons, right? Who themselves, verse 1, had sons after the flood. Look at verse 2. Here are the sons of Japheth. And you've got all these uh, different sounding names, right? Now look at verse 5. From these names... The maritime peoples spread out into their territories. Now watch this. You've got to go word for word. By their clans within their... What's the next word? This is the first time the word nations is used in the Bible. The Great Commission. The mission of the church is to go and reach out to all nations, and this is the first time. Now, what is the definition of a nation? Look what it says in verse 5 of chapter 10. Comma, each nation with its own what? There it is. There it is. If you count up the names of Japheth, you have 14 names listed. Apparently, 14 language groups. Now, let's go over to... um, Uh, verse 30, or verse 20. These are the sons of Ham by their clans and languages in their territories, and this is the second time in the Bible that the word nations is used. And if you add up the names and you go down to verse 31, these are the sons of Uh, the the sons of Ham, there's 30 names. Then you go to verse 21. Sons were also born to Shem. If you add up Shem's names in verse 31, these are the sons of Shem by their clans and languages and their territories and nations. So if you add up the the names under Japheth, the names under Ham and the names under Shem, it comes out to 70. 70 different language groups and cultures. Now, Let's go to chapter 11, verse 1, and let me show you a very interesting historical notation. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. Now, the whole world had one language in a common speech. Now, how can God have created all of these different language groups and cultures and nations? And chapter 11, verse 1 says the whole world spoke one language. Moses is not writing in chronological order. Chapter 9 follows chapter, you know, chapter 10, chapter 11. He's writing about an event that happened. In chapter 10, Moses is telling what happened. In chapter 11, Moses is telling how God did it. So in Genesis chapter 11, verse 1, Everybody alive on the face of the earth spoke one language. 
there was only one culture. Let me take you back to Genesis chapter 1. Let's go back to the very beginning. Adam and Eve were created. And listen to the words that God told Adam and Eve. He said, you don't need to turn there. He said, I want you to be fruitful, and I want you, that means have children, I want you to multiply, and I want you to do what? Fill the earth. In other words, God was saying, I want you to mobilize, I want you to spread out, I don't want you to hang together, I want you to live all over the earth. Well, you know the story, mankind put on his left blinker, went south, fell into sin, worldwide flood, the whole Noah's Ark. One family was righteous in the sight of the Lord by faith because Noah trusted God. And so eight people went into the ark. Eight people came out of the ark after a year later. And in Genesis chapter 9, God reiterates word for word what he had told Adam and Eve. He said, Noah and your three boys and my three daughters-in-law, I want you to be fruitful. I want you to multiply. Don't hang together. I want you to move out. I want you to spread out. And I want you to live all over the world. Because of this, God wanted ethnic and linguistic and cultural diversity on the earth. Because we know that when speakers of one language separate from each other and never have contact with each other again, those, that one language will morph into two different languages. And if the speakers of this language separate and never have contact with each other, that language will morph into two different languages and they just continue to morph and create new language groups. You see, from the very beginning, God wanted cultural, nationalistic, and linguistic diversity on the earth. For this reason, God receives the greatest glory when there is unity in the context of diversity. My brothers and sisters, you live in a very unique place in the United States. You are immersed in linguistic and cultural diversity. And that's what God wants. Because people in their own effort and their own power are not going to unite themselves as nations. The United Nations is a joke. The League of Nations after World War I was a joke. The only power that can unite the hearts of people with distinctly different languages and cultures and values and beliefs is the power of God made known through His Holy Spirit. And so in the presence of diversity, when there is unity, God receives the greatest amount of glory. That's a little lofty. Are you with me? Okay. Let's go back to chapter 1. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole world had one language in a common speech. Verse 3. They said to each other, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. 
This is in modern day. This is in the country of what we would call Iraq today. The whole southern part of Iraq is a massive delta. It's the largest swamp in the Middle East. And there's no rock down there, so they just they had they used mud to bake bricks. That's what Moses is talking about here. Verse 4. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heaven, so that we may make a name for ourselves. Now watch this. And not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Now, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, God told Adam and Eve, I want you to have children, and I want you to move out. In other words, I want you to go. And mankind fell into sin. And then in Genesis chapter 9, God said the same thing to Noah and his family. And I want you to move out. And and so in Genesis chapter 1, God said, go. In Genesis chapter 9, God said, go. And in Genesis chapter 11, everybody is saying, no. No. So let's pick it up in verse 5. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. And the Lord said, yikes. Is that in your translation? If as one people, that means one culture, speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language, singular, so that they will not understand each other. This, this my, my brothers and sisters, I believe this was not only judgment on their rebellion. I believe it was graciousness and compassion. Because we know from the time of the flood, mankind and their sin and rebellion continue to spiral down and down and down and down and down. And and it's all recorded in the opening chapters how degraded mankind became. And God said, time out, no more. I am going to go down and I'm going to intervene. Because once again, they're going to continue to spiral down in their degradation. And the way God intervened to stop this rebellion is He came down and He took that one language and He multiplied it by making 69 other new language groups. Look at verse 8 of chapter 11. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth. And that's why... You've got the situation you do in Orange County. And they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world, and from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth, including Southern California. Now, when you put um, people of different languages and cultures together, it can be a little chaotic. And so number three on your notes, I, I wrote, okay, I understand that it was a God thing there in Genesis chapter 10 and 11. I, I can buy into that. But <laughs> what about, let me show you some whatabouts on the screen. Why in the world are there so many languages? God. You can lay it at His feet. 
All the stuff that you experience and feel, God. Or, I don't think it's good to mix so many languages together in one place. Why can't everyone in America just speak English? Why do I have to listen to an airport announcement in Spanish in the heartland while waiting to fly on American? Frankly, I don't like people from other cultures and languages. We are losing our country. I don't want to press one in order to continue my phone call in English. When I purchase a product like a camera, I don't appreciate having to lug around an owner's manual as thick as a phone book because it includes multiple languages. This is my country, and those people are like taking it over. Illegal is illegal. Do you know how hard it is to understand somebody with an accent through a fast food speaker box? I don't like my fast food order all messed up because the person working the counter doesn't speak English good. Well, hey, I want to be able to understand the person when I call tech support. All of those perspectives and attitudes are good for this reason. There's only one power that can bring all that diversity together into a harmony of praise. And it's not the League of Nations, and it's not the United Nations. It's the God of the nations. It's like the great maestros of orchestras. The orchestra is comprised of diversity of of instruments and sounds. You've got, you've got the, the brass. You know, things that go back and forth and things that go like this and great big tubas. And you've got the woodwinds. The, you've, you've got the, uh, the clarinets and the saxophones and then, and then you've got the piccolos and, and then you've got the stringed instruments and then you've got the percussion. And the great maestros are the ones that can take all of that sound, all of that diversity, and bring them into a harmony. That's what God wants to do with the nations. He wants to bring them into a harmony of praise and worship. But Satan is dead set against it. I'd like for you to take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 20. And I want to remind us that we are at war. We are involved in a spiritual war. If God loves the nations, Satan hates the nations. If God wants to redeem the nations, Satan wants to destroy the nations. Now this spiritual war that we're involved with started in heaven way over here. It's a spiritual war because Satan led a rebellion among the angels against God. And apparently, 30% of the angels sided with Satan. And we call those uh, satanic angels demonic angels or demons or spirits or principalities or powers or authorities. There's different synonyms in the New Testament that describes these angels that sided with Satan in his rebellion against God in heaven. 
The, the, the war started here. And my brothers and sisters, the war is not going to conclude until over here in Revelation chapter 20. And everything in between, the time that the war broke out in heaven among, by Satan against God, from that time that it started until it's going to conclude in Revelation chapter 20, Satan is hell-bent on taking the nations down with him. And so as Jesus has given a mission to the church to, to go and bless the nations with spiritual light and truth and freedom, Satan is going to do everything he can to disrupt your effort. Now, we're in 2008. That means we are in the in-between time of the time the rebellion started and the time until it's going to end in Revelation chapter 20. So let's look at the end in Revelation chapter 20. This is good stuff. Revelation chapter 20, let's begin verse 1. John said, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. And that must have been quite, quite, a, quite a vision that, that John was seeing. And now he, 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 was, he was writing it for us. Verse 2, he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him a thousand years. He threw Satan into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from, what's the next three words? You see, it's all about the nations. It's all about the language groups. It's all about the cultural groups in the world today that God created. Let's look at it again. And he sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. Under the authority of Jesus Christ, Satan is going to be bound and sealed in prison for 1,000 years. At the end of that thousand-year time period, it doesn't say Satan will be released. It says Satan must be released. Let's pick it up in verse 7. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to... What's the next three words? You see, it's all about the nations. That's the mission of the church, and that's the attack of Satan. To keep the church away from its mission to bless the nations with spiritual truth and light and freedom. Let's go down and finish in verse 10. And the devil who deceived them, that would be the nations, was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. It's over. The rebellion has been squashed. But until Revelation chapter 20, in the meantime, we are living in between time. And Satan is in his fury and hatred doing everything he can to keep you from being on mission to the nations. He will distract you. He will accuse you. He will tempt you. He will discourage you. 
He will attack you. He will do anything he can to you individually and your family to keep you distracted, disarmed, playing trivia pursuit. Let me conclude in Revelation chapter 21. This is the last time the word nations is used in the Bible. Revelation 21:22, John continues, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The temple is where you worship. And the reason the Lamb is the temple is that Jesus is the object of our worship, therefore he is the temple. Verse 23, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God like radiates and gives it light, and the Lamb, Jesus, is its lamp. Now look at verse 24. Here we go again. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. Wait a minute. I thought heaven was all about God and His glory. No. Heaven is also about the splendor of the nations. That's what it says. Let's continue on verse 25. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. Now you've got to check out verse 26. All of you look at it. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. My brothers and sisters, the language groups of the world have glory and honor. The cultures of the world have glory and honor. There is something about the the bozos. There are a bunch of bozos in the world. And I'm not talking about Washington, D.C. It is the nation that lives in Mali, West Africa. There is something about the bozos that's glorious. It's their culture. It's their language. Uh, How about, uh, you know, mothers and fathers all across the United States tell their little children, you don't need to be afraid. There's no such thing as a boogeyman. Oh, yes, there are boogie people. There's 1.3 million boogie people. They live in Indonesia. They are a nation. And it says that the nations are going to bring their glory and their honor. Now, this is just my opinion. I have nothing whatsoever to back this up. But I believe that the the highest glorious expression of a nation is its language. And if the nations are going to bring their glory and their honor into heaven, perhaps, that's all I can say, the nations are going to bring their language into heaven. Their cultural identities are going to remain intact. Why? Because that's the way God made them. He is the author of the languages and the cultures of the world. And so let's get practical. I'm an insider. I'm not from the Midwest, though I do live in Warsaw, Indiana. But Jan and I were born and raised in Los Angeles. And I know what you all feel and experience. We went to the Los Cerritos Shopping Center 
on the 605 yesterday to do some shopping. And and, and I just stopped in the middle of the mall. I said, Jan, look at the ethnic diversity that's in this place. And she turned to me and she said, honey, we're the diversity. (laughs) It was incredible. Languages, all different kinds of languages. We just went around just listening to people's conversations. If you chafe against the language and the cultural groups in the world, if, if you get frustrated and you get angry and you get fearful and, and, and prejudice controls your heart, my brothers and sisters, you are chafing against the very design of God. And as the church, we've got to rise above that inevitable chaos and confusion. And we've got to see the big picture that Jesus has this white, hot, ongoing, passionate love affair with that which he created, the nations. And the nations are living in your community. For some of you, how many of you have a different ethnic group, language group, or culture living on your street? Let me see your hands. Don't you dare get on an airplane and go to the foreign mission field. Sorry, Mike. (laughs) Missions commission. (laughs) The foreign mission field, quote-unquote, is right in your neighborhoods. The gentleman that played the piano this morning, wasn't that beautiful? What's his name? Bob? Uh, He came up to me uh, during the break after first service. He said, you know what happened at 6 o'clock this morning? I said, no. He said, "Uh, my neighbors were out. And he said, uh, the man, my, my neighbor, he doesn't speak English. I went, really? Is he, uh, what language? He said, well, he's Hispanic. I said, he doesn't speak English, huh? I said, well, how far does he live from you? He said, 100 yards. I said, 100 yards from your house, you have a man who doesn't speak English. He goes, yeah. I said, Bob, you know how you could be a blessing to this man? Help him learn English. He says, well, I can't teach English. I said, sure you can. I said, Bob... What is this that I'm wearing? He says, it's a shirt. I said, well, let's analyze it. It's a shh, shh, shh sound. Now, that might be hard for some languages. Shh, shh. And then the er sound, er, and then a t, t. Shh, er, t. Shirt. It's a noun. And I said, can you teach him to say the word shirt? He goes, yeah. I said, you just taught him English. See how it works? Let me, let me say it again. If you have a different ethnicity, language, or cultural group um, living on your block, let me see your hands again. Man, I wish I could take a picture of that. Oh, Lord. Wow. What an opportunity. No plane fare necessary. No U.S. passport necessary. And no inoculation shots necessary. Wow. Oh, Lord. Open our eyes, and Satan, we resist you in the name and the authority of the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords, the creator, the sustainer, the Lamb of God, the Lion of Judah, the bright and morning star, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.